It's good to be with you again. It's uh, always a treat to come back to uh, particularly in-town church. It is so uh, heartwarming for Carol, my wife, who's hiding out in the middle there in that rust-colored dress, for us to, uh, to see old friends and meet new ones and see what the word of the Lord and what the gospel of God is doing in this city. And I'm so very excited to meet you all again. Now, I want to thank Dave. He probably won't hear this until he listens to it on a recording. But I want to thank him for giving me to preach this morning the hardest parable in the Bible. Uh, as I was researching over the last few weeks, I was uh, researching in all the experts on parables. And this, this is true. One guy who writes the book, big, thick book on parables, lists all the various interpretations of this parable. There are 18. And then he proceeded to give a 19th. People are all over the charts trying to figure out this parable. Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Who is represented by the master? Who's represented by the servant? Is this parable really saying to us we ought to be slick and shrewd and make money? And even if we do it illegitimately, it's better than if we don't. How do you read this parable? It seems on its surface to be very, very strange. The first thing I want to say to you about a hard parable is that there are a couple of very important things that we ought to remember whenever we read the Bible, but especially when we read passages that seem to be contradicting what the Bible says in other places. I mean, for example, if you look at verse six, if you look at chapter 16 and go to verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Does that mean it sometimes is really good to be dishonest? That would seem to contradict passages in the Bible that hold up the fact that we are to be people of truth at all times. Is shrewdness the same as slippery ethics? Which would play well in some places. But Jesus teaching in other places is so clear. God not only judges what you do, he judges the motives in which you do it. And if your motives are slippery, nothing you do is going to be good. Right? So there are certain principles. So I, I would suggest to you that the way this parable might look on the surface at the beginning is probably not the best way to read it. The second thing you got to read, you got to remember whenever you read the hard passages in the Bible, the passages in the Bible that give you kind of a low-grade headache spiritually. You know those, those passages? The second thing is you always, always, always have to pay, a con uh, pay attention to the context, the what, where it is set in the story. If it's a parable, where it's set in the list of parables that are given. So let's take a look at this hard parable this morning as we remember where it is set. Now, if you have a Bible or if you remember what was there, can, is it on there? Can you put this right at verse 1, please? 
<clears throat> I want you to notice the first three words. He also said. What does that suggest to you? Well, this is connected somehow to what he just got done saying. Well, what did he just get done saying? Well, we don't have to rewind the tape to remember Luke chapter 15. It's a single parable in three scenes. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. You remember? But it's got three scenes. First, there's a woman who loses a coin, and then there's another one who loses something else, and after they find it, they celebrate and they rejoice because what was lost has been found, and then comes the kicker, a son. He's not only lost to his dad because he leaves, he's lost to, to polite society because on the way out the door, he says to his old man, I want my half. I wish you were dead so I could get it all right now. So he takes his dad's share of the inheritance and he goes off and he wastes it on women and on booze and on partying and he ends up in the gutter feeding pigs. Shameful to anybody who's Jewish. Right? I mean, you remember the story, right? Then he comes to his senses, the Bible says. Now, most of us who read it, we, we want to say, well, this is really a parable about how much the Father loves him. Or it's a parable about what real repentance looks like. Well, not so much. Because the context of that parable was that Jesus was eating with sinners. Professional ones, some prostitutes, maybe some pickpockets, some money manipulators. He was having dinner with them, and that was shameful in Israel. And some of the people around, particularly the Pharisees, the accountants, the spiritual accountants who are watching to see everybody's sins and how many they sin and how bad they are, because there's this fundamental rule that all of our hearts want to believe. The good people get blessed. The bad people get shafted. That's what, we, that's what we think the world runs by. But Jesus says to those Pharisees, let me tell you a parable, and he tells them the parable of the prodigal son. So the son comes back, hasn't even said anything to his dad about repentance. Dad, goes, dad hikes up his, his, his robes, and he runs down the street. Shameful for an old man to do that in that generation. And he embraces his son. And before his son can say anything, he says, no, we're going to have a party. You're back. We're going to celebrate. This is fantastic. And the older brother says, dude, I behaved myself. You never gave me a party. You see what's behind that? That, that fundamental belief that good people ought to get parties and bad people ought to suffer? that behavior is really the determining characteristic about how things work with God and with man. Then he also said this one, this one, this parable. He also said it. So let's take a look at 
what he also said. There was a rich man who had a steward, is the original language. Now, a steward was not a paid employee who maybe was like the chief financial officer that wrote the checks and kept the books. The steward was the guy who said, to, to whom the master said, look, my life is complicated. I'm busy doing business. I'm busy with my family. I'm busy doing... I'm going to entrust my entire estate to you, my finances, my buildings, the people I've hired. I entrust the whole thing to you. Here's my checkbook. Here's the key to my safe deposit box. I give you everything. Run it well for me. That's the word that is used here for manager. The guy has absolute authority of the master's home. Now, if you want to argue, some commentators do, that this must be some kind of a parallel to Israel and God, then you, you read this opening paragraph, there was a rich man, God, who had a manager, Israel, and Israel screwed up. I, I don't necessarily think that's the best way to read that. I think you're pushing the, the comment because this is part of the he also said stuff. We're, we're going all the way back to the parable of the prodigal son here, right? So here's how I think a normal person in that day would have heard this story. There was a rich man. Cue Jaws music. Rich men were not loved. They were the few who had power in any city. We've been in, Carol and I have been in cities in India, and, and, and we go into a village where all the homes are, are uh, grass-roofed, and, and people crawl through little holes to get into their huts. And then right in the middle, there's this little, small, like, two-room house, but it's concrete block. And it's got a little paint on it. That's the rich guy. He can afford the concrete block. These people can't. They're living under grass roofs, right? So when it rains, they get wet. He stays dry. And he's cocky, and he parades through the city, the little village in India, and he's, you know, he... When you said there was a rich man and there was a steward, the opening sentence said, okay, there's this guy. He's got power. And then there's this steward to whom he's entrusted the power. All right? So far with me? All right. And charges were brought to the rich man that his steward was wasting his possessions. Can you imagine how serious a charge that is? You give this guy your checkbook, the key to your uh, safe deposit box, and all of your assets and all of your people so that you completely trust your life to him while you're busy doing your own thing. And then you hear he's ripping you off. This is scary stuff, right? I mean, I don't know how many pro athletes I haven't read about in the last few years who made millions and millions of dollars, and then they find out that their, their trusted financial manager blew it all, and now they're broke. 
And it always ends up in a court, in a lawsuit, and on the front page of the sports section. <laughs> it's, a, it's a heartbreaker, right? So he calls the, the, the steward to him, and he says, what, what's this I hear about you? Bring me the books. Did you catch that? Here's how it says in the Bible. Turn in the account of your management. Bottom line is, bring me the books. And I don't want to see doubles. I want to see the books. Bring me the accounts. I want to look at the accounts. Now you see the manager do something that only God can tell you about. Something that's going on in his head. How's he thinking? What, what's his thought process? Okay? Now, you, you remember that God did the same thing in the last parable. The son runs off. He shames his father. He shames his culture. He shames his people. And he runs off and he lives like an absolute pagan. But God gives us a window into his thoughts. He's sitting there feeding pigs. And the text says, and he came to his senses and he said, man, my father's servants are doing better than I'm doing. They got food to eat, and I'm his son, and I'm a wretched mess. What have I done with my life? So you get this. He, God opens the, the trap door of his brain, and you see the thought. You see the wheels turning, right? You see how he's processing the information. And what does he do? He decides to come home and say to his dad, I'd rather be one of your servants than to be out there alone. Right? All right, now version two. The, dis the, the dishonest steward. He starts to think. And what's he thinking? He says, he says what am I going to do? I'm about to lose my job. To talk about transparency and honesty about yourself... I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm a weak wimp. And I'm ashamed to beg. I got a little too much pride. Right? right? I mean, it, it, it's tough to admit that kind of honesty to yourself. That's, that's hard to admit. There are people in this room who have had to deal with their own failures. Some of them are monumental failures. Some of them are little failures. But to get honest about your failures, that's hard. He got honest. He got real. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to work this so that when the last day of my employment comes, I'll have somewhere to go. I'm going to make friends using my master's money. Ooh. Ooh. That, that might not sound so pure, does it? But watch what he does. <clears throat> so summoning his master's debtors. These are people that own his boss money. He starts one after another. He says, how much do you owe my master? This is a big one. A hundred measures of oil. That's like, man, in a world where you counted your wealth in how many garments you had, uh, how many jewels you had, and perhaps how much olive oil you had, because olive oil could be, could be used for multiple things. It was for skin uh, health. It was for food. It, it could be bought, bought and sold as a commodity. Olive oil. So you got, you got a guy here, and he says, how much do you owe my master? I, I owe him 
uh, one entire truck tanker of olive oil. This is a big, this is a big amount. So he says to him, tell you what, you owe him 100, write him a check for 50. And the next guy, he calls him in and he says, how much do you owe my master? I owe him 100 measures of wheat, two or three truckloads of wheat. He says, tell you what, instead of paying him 100 measure, take your bill and write a check for 80. Now, what, what's your thought on that? What, what's your first reaction to that? The guy's a, what, scoundrel? He's slippery. He's, 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 he's buying off friends. Is that how it looks, right? There's one thing I should probably add to the story that everybody in the first century would have known that quickly but people who live 2,000 years later probably don't know. Here's the deal. If you are a wealthy man in Israel, you are not allowed to loan money out at interest. It's forbidden. It's a violation of the law. God had said going all the way back to Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, you may charge interest only when you're working out in the international markets, but among my people, you may not charge interest because among my people, I don't want there to be poverty. I want you to take care of it with generous hearts. So what do we got here? Well, we got a master who's charging serious interest, 50% interest, maybe 20% interest in his dealings with his own brothers. And what does the, quote, dishonest manager do about this? He makes the debt right and helps his master avoid the shame of violating the law of God. And so the master gets the check and he says to his, to his manager, oh, <laughs> you're shrewd. You got me paid and I avoided the shame of violating the laws of God. You're wise. See, it's kind of a, it's kind of a I expect the dishonest manager to be the bad guy. But really what it is, is that it's the rich man who's the scoundrel. And the dishonest manager is moving him toward righteousness. Now let's pause right here. Let's pause right here. Back to the first parable, the prodigal son. Back to the Pharisees who didn't want to eat with the sinners. Back to the Pharisees who thought that the best way to regulate life was by establishing more and more and more laws and making sure that we were a law and order society. And if we're a law and order society and we make sure everybody's going to keep the laws, everything will be fine. You know what Jesus just did in these parables? He whispered into the Pharisees' ears, I know you stinkers. You don't keep the laws either. And I know how you break them. 
who, who are you to accuse my people of sinning when you, the, you yourselves are the chief of the scoundrels? So he says something to him that really is a very hard thing to understand. It's a very difficult application. This is the second point, and I'm talking about verse 8. The master commended, he applauded, he said, props to you, good job. I, he commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. That's an interesting word. I mean, we don't use the word shrewd very often in English. I don't know, when's the last time somebody clapped you on the back and said, you're shrewd. I mean, we pronounce it a little different. You're screwed, or you're this, or you're that, but, but never shrewd. That, that's just not something we, we drop into our conversation. It's a hard word to translate. And it, and it kind of goes back to that Old Testament passage where God had said to his people, look, I want you to be wise like serpents. I want, I want you to have the tongue, the tongue that's out of... It's always sensing the air. I want you to know what's going on in the world. But I also want you to be innocent like a dove. You catch the, the difference? I don't want you to be so naive that sin surprises you. Sometimes Christians can be so, so naive. Carol and I just had a conversation with, with somebody this past week, and she said, Oh, it's easy for me to, to manipulate you, John. Because you always believe the best about people. And I can always play you. But I can't play Carol. She sees right through me. Now, I didn't know whether that was a slam on me. <laughs> That's how I took it. Or a compliment to me. Or a slam on my wife. Or a compliment to my wife. But, you know, God says, I want you to be wise like the serpents. I, I want you to be savvy. I don't want you surprised when sinners act like sinners. Why should that surprise you? If they don't have God in their heart, why should their behavior disappoint you? And yet sometimes we do that. Where somebody, somebody sins monu monumentally and we say, oh, uh, really? You're surprised when a sinner sins? But for you, he says, I want you innocent like a dove. I don't want you preening in public about being this pure rich man when you're making a lot of your money illegally before the face of God. You are a stinker, and it's time you own it. I want your motives pure. I want your motives to be motives that love me. I don't want you playing two-faced. Got that? So he says, the master commends his, his dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for being, for being smart enough to know how things work in the world. And then he says, for the sons of this world, the, the worldly people around us, right? The, the people you all know who are not going to do you favors on the streets, right? They're, they're, they're not going to stop their car and say, and say to you, you don't have a car? Here, take mine. No, they're going to find a way to squeeze you. 
In business, they do that. That's the ways of the world, right? The ways of people who don't have the motives of the kingdom of God in their hearts. They're going to live like sinners. And he says, the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The people who are used to living in the community of Christian believers and who want to believe that that's the way all people live. We can be so naive sometimes. Heard a sermon last week in the church that we attend where the pastor was suggesting that he says, you know, before I became a pastor, I used to run a Starbucks. And he said, initially, I wanted to hire Christian people, but after hiring a bunch of Christian people, I found out they were the worst employees. <laughs> Every time I called them on something, you know what their first response was? Oh, I'm being persecuted for my faith. No, you're not. You're being scolded for being a lousy employee. You're supposed to get here early, do your job well, in fact, do it with excellence, and stay at least until the closing bell. Then let's talk about maybe one day you deserve a raise. Don't tell me you deserve a 20% raise because you made it five days in a row. That's not noteworthy. That's expected. I thought that's, that's exactly the point here. The, 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 the people of the world are shrewder. They get it. They live in it. They, they, they know how this system works. They're more shrewd than the sons of light who sometimes become so, so naive about right and wrong and righteousness and motives. And then he says, therefore, and here's where it gets kind of weird. Therefore, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. What do you suppose that means? You suppose that means stolen goods or money that you earned in the corrupt system by doing corrupt things? I, I, I don't think so. I think what he's talking about is those resources that God entrusted to you, that, what, that most of us believe are our own. And... I got more than you, so I must be more blessed than you. And you got less than me, so you must be naughtier than me. And we view this, this wealth thing, however you define it, whether it's money or investments or cars or homes or places to stay or relations, we, we, we view these things as if they are somehow rewards from God for being good. And he said, no, 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 don't go there. This is, this is wealth that has very little to do with your righteousness. This is not wealth that you've earned by your righteousness. This is wealth that is unconnected to righteousness. It's, it's unrighteous. It's, it's neutral. It's stuff God's given you. But here's the kicker. Make friends with it so that as time unfolds and you begin to learn, learn what's really eternal and what really is going to pass away, you can put your values where they matter. You with me so far? Have I just lost you all? 
Okay, let's, let's talk about what this means for us today. I think key to the passage is Jesus addressing the Pharisees of the parable of the prodigal son. I think he's looking right, he's looking them right in the eye. And he's talking to them by talking to the disciples about them. And he's telling his disciples, don't you dare value this world in terms of how much money or homes or wealth or power people have. Don't go there. There's always another side to the story of their life. Right? You, you get that, right? I think the second thing he's saying here is this is all about money and money is all about hearts. Did, did you notice how, how the, the passage ends? Now, there's a big debate about whether this parable ends at verse 8 or whether it ends at verse 13. But I don't see any problem with connecting it. Look at, look at verse 10. One who's faithful in a little is also faithful in much. What a great lesson to teach a grandson. I had a grandson who took his first job this past week. And he called me one day and he said, I, I, I can't get to work on time. Can you pick me up? I said, oh, yeah, I'll be right over. And he said, how come he came so fast? I said, there's a verse in the Bible that says you got to be faithful in the little stuff. And if you're faithful in the little stuff for a long enough time, God might entrust you with more. So might your boss. But if you take this kind of stuff, getting to work on time, being dressed, being, you know, brushing your teeth before you serve food, I mean, you take care of the little stuff, maybe you're going to get a promotion. You don't take care of the little stuff, you've got nothing to complain about. Right? So these are valuable kind of statements. But then he goes on and he says, no servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other. He'll be devoted to the one or despise the other. You cannot serve, here, here it is, God and what? Money. Now, I don't think he's talking folding cash. I don't think he's talking coins. I don't think he's talking 401k investments. I think he's talking about all of it. The way the world counts success. You can't serve God on the one hand and live for the world's definitions of success on the other. You, you, you got to choose. Where's my heart aiming me? Is my heart aiming me at those metrics and I'll go to church because it makes me look good on Sunday? Or am I going to live for God? And if I live for God, then I have to have a different perspective about whatever it is he's entrusted me with. You, you can't live for this and then say you worship him. You can't live for him and not have it impact all of this. And I think that's where he's going with the application. And I think his point is this. Every one of you in this congregation has been entrusted with something. Some have been entrusted with a something that is this big. Some have been entrusted with a something that is this big. It doesn't matter. It may matter to the comfort of how you live your life, but it doesn't matter in eternal issues. But what you have is his. It's his. It's God's. 
And what you do with it either honors him or it shames him. It either makes his name great or you're just playing games with him. So Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to focus on the eternal impact of what you do with what he's given you. And you know what? That's not something it's easy for a preacher to say. Because you are the guys that live in your skin in this congregation. I think this is the kind of thing that a congregation needs to have conversations about. I think people who have means have to have conversations about what, what are we doing with our money? What are we doing with it? Are we making an eternal impact for the kingdom of God with our money? Or is the only thing we're focusing in on is increased interest and capital gains for ourselves? If that really is all we're focused on, maybe we need to start talking to each other about how should we invest our money so that the kingdom is advanced? That's a big deal. Because frankly, that's why you have what you have. Now, the, the interesting thing that I deal with as a, as a guy that works for a mission organization that works in India and China and Dominican Republic and Nicaragua, I come to people and I say, I'd like to have you consider investing in this work of God. You know, boy, it's on the other side of the globe. I can't see what God's doing. Yeah, I know, I know. Someday I want to take you there and show you that. But I talk to churches like you and I say, you know, it'd be neat if, if you could have a sister church in the rural villages of South China. And you say, well, I don't even know what those people look like. I, I, I get that. Maybe it's easier to say to you, how are you dealing with the poor here? But I also want you to think about how big are your eyes regarding the work of God? Is God only working here? Or is he also working in China and in India and all these places? So it's, it's a conversation, a congregation, and husbands and wives and friends have to have with each other and look each other in the eye and say, uh, what are we doing with this money that belongs to God that he's entrusted to us for a time? Are we being faithful with it? Are you individually being faithful with the gifts God's given you? Maybe you don't have money, but maybe you got the gift to encourage other people who are in tough situations. What are you doing with it? Maybe you don't have money, but you got the gift of knowing the Savior and you can pray for people and you're not doing it. You say, I'll pray for you, but you never do it. Maybe you don't have a house. I don't know. I told you last year about the kid that came to our ministry in North India and he had no eyes because his parents had gouged him out to make him more pathetic looking as a beggar on the streets. And he felt his way into the, into the grounds of this little ministry of Christian people loving each other very well. And he just stood there in the open grounds. He didn't know where to go. He couldn't see anything. 
And two young boys came up to him on crutches. And they said, what's your name? And he told them his name. And they said, what are you doing here? He says, I hear there are people here who love people from the streets well. And I'm sick and tired of being urinated on and beat up. That life on the streets is killing me. And the one kid, one kid looks at him and says, where are you going to stay? He said, I don't know. He said, well, when I got here last year, they gave me a bed. I've had it all year. It's about time I share it with somebody else. You can have my bed. Will you have me? He gets it, you see? He gets that what he had came from God and wasn't just for him. It was to expand the reputation of the God of grace in this world. We're supposed to be making God's name famous, not ours. We're supposed to be using our resources to make God known, not just to make us comfortable. And that's a complex kind of a discussion in every situation. I'm thrilled that this congregation looks as diverse as the kingdom of God ought to look. But I'll bet you, you guys haven't resolved all the issues of that. This is a tough world. We don't talk with each other well. We talk about each other better. And that doesn't do us any good. We got to start talking about how do we use what we have, who we are, in order to make the name of God great. We got to do it locally. We got to do it one-on-one. -on -one. We got to do it as a church here. And I think we who are from the wealthier West have to share it with the miserably poor rest of the world. I lay that on your hearts today. It was a dishonest manager who got it and a rich man who didn't until the dishonest manager showed him, dude, all of our hearts are the same. What we have belongs to the one who gave it to us. It's a sacred trust. We live for him. Let's pray. Father, we're about to come to the Lord's table. <laughs> and we're not going to take the bread and wine as a sign that we have behaved ourselves this week. We're going to take the bread and the wine as signs that like the rich man and like the dishonest manager and like the prodigal son, and like the person sitting next, next to us in the chair right adjacent to where we're sitting, our lives are, are broken. We have failed you. We have failed others. We've made a mess of our lives. And only you, not laws, not effort, not wealth, not possession, only you can make us right. And once we taste what it's like to be right with God and right in God, then finally we get a perspective on what to do with all that you've entrusted us with. We're to use it for you.
Help this congregation figure that out. Help each of us this morning make that commitment as we eat the bread and drink the cup of your love. In Jesus' name, amen.